This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Stephen Collin, thank you for the introduction and for the invitation. It's great to be home. This is uh, a topic that for many of you would make you glaze over, I'm sure. Congenital heart disease has been the domain of pediatric critical care, but believe me, these patients are surviving and they're coming to an ICU near you. I'm not going to be speaking about a range of congenital heart disease and going into specific anatomy. I'm going to try and stay a little bit broader than that. And I'm also going to try and stay a little bit with the critical care theme because this is uh, an area where there is just nothing available in the literature other than anecdotal reports. We have not had the opportunity to follow these patients long enough to really know what their burden is and the impact that will have in critical care. But there's no doubt that there are extraordinary successes in, critical, in uh, the survival. Right now, a patient, any patient that comes into the critical care unit, sick kids, Boston, Royal Children's, anywhere um, in major academic centers, the expected survival across that entire cohort is around 98 to 97, 97 to 98%. Extraordinary. Over three decades, there's been great improvements in surgical technique, in diagnostic uh, and, and uh, therapeutic imaging, and in critical care management and nursing that has contributed to this substantial uh, improvement. I do want to tackle two areas though. One is the neurodevelopmental outcome of these patients and the longer term uh, quality of life. And it's important to remember that many of our patients are corrected but they're not cured. They bring a burden with them that is lifelong. And I will also refer to the adult with congenital heart disease and the impact that can have on our practices, particularly in critical care. Now, let's start with neurodevelopmental outcomes. This was a, a, a recent um, summary that looked at various aspects related to uh, neurodevelopmental impairment in children with congenital heart disease. This is not a new phenomenon. This has been something that has been studied for the last uh, 30 years. And in fact, in my early uh, lab experience in the 1990s was looking exactly at this with uh, a neonatal piglet model uh, undergoing bypass, uh, placing them in, a, in an MRI magnet at MIT and following them for some days afterwards and looking at their, uh, their recovery. We have not seen a decrease in the risk for neurodevelopmental impairment in patients over time. Some of the problem we have is that there is an era effect. The way patients were managed in the early 90s is really quite different to the way they're managed now. That, you would think, should have, an, have led to an improvement in this um, particular problem. On the converse, it's reported that in patients that say undergoing the stage one palliation for hypoplastic left heart syndrome, the, there is a risk up to 30% of those patients will have significant neurodevelopmental impairment as they're growing. Now some of that reflects improved imaging and improved monitoring that uh, has gone on, but there is no doubt that there is a risk. 
And there are a number of factors that contribute to that now. We know that there are underlying abnormalities, genetic abnormalities, that um, are in syndromes that consistently lead to adverse outcomes. There is certainly a change in uh, cerebral hemodynamics in the, in the fetus, and that's been well characterized by MRI. And there is a, a large amount of effort now looking at fetal intervention to try and improve the uh, dynamics of the circulation and improve oxygen delivery in particular to the brain in the fetus. But there are still uh, abnormalities that are evident in the fetus with heart disease as opposed to the, the normal patient. And then we have the sequelae of heart disease, often with chronic severe cyanosis, certainly mal malnutrition, uh, arrhythmias, cardiac arrest, these events that are occurring during their immediate uh, recovery. There's also sequelae from the interventions, cardiac catheters, surgery, uh, and increasingly concern over the way in which patients are perhaps managed in the ICU, uh, and the impairment or the impact of hemodynamic instability on uh, cerebrovascular hemodynamics and, and uh, the vulnerability of the immature brain. This was a study that was undertaken some years ago. It came uh, from Boston Children's Hospital by Jane Newberger, and it came from the, uh, the Boston Circulatory Arrest Study. It was a study that enrolled 190 newborns with transposition of the great arteries, and this was designed to look at the impact of low flow versus deep hypothermic circulatory arrest uh, bypass strategies. And these patients have been now followed out for um, coming up to 20 years. So we're getting some idea as to what their neurological outcomes are longer term. Uh, it's important to remember that these patients were enrolled in around the uh, 1990, 1991, and as I said, there's been substantial changes in the way in which these patients are subsequently managed. But what Jane wanted to demonstrate was that there was a relationship between the length of stay in the ICU and their longer term neurodevelopmental outcome, in particular verbal and full scale IQ scores. And you can see that the longer the, the period of time that one spends in the ICU, then the lower the IQ. Well, Jane went even further to categorize this into looking at associations when adjusting for other predictors that impact the uh, length of stay in the ICU and other variables that could affect a developmental outcome. And she came up with a conclusion that there was a reduction in IQ of 1.4 points and 1.6 points in math achievement for every day spent in the ICU. So we have some patients that are spending upwards of 30, 40 days in the ICU. I have no doubt that those patients are not leaving us in a vegetative state. But the implication from this type of information is that the longer you stay in the ICU, the greater the decrement in your um, IQ and other achievement scores. Parents read this. It concerns them. They challenge the management strategies as a result. Now, that's fine. I expect that. I welcome that. The context of this is still to be determined, however. But that's the type of information that is now uh, available and is obviously concerning. And if you look at the neurodevelopmental outcomes of children uh, some years after undergoing congenital heart surgery, there are some behavioral signatures here. Uh, there are impairments of motor skills, both motor and, and gross motor, visuospatial skills, working memory, uh, ability to generate hypotheses, 
vigilance, sustained attention, higher order language, specific learning disabilities. That's quite a large list of disabilities that these patients can all uh, demonstrate, but I think they fall into two major categories as they get older, and one is with executive dysfunction, so the ability to integrate and coordinate skills to achieve higher goals, their ability to organize, to uh, revise strategies and plans, and to structure and monitor their behavior. It's a bit like ADH. They also have deficits in social cognition, decreased ability to read other people. I work with colleagues who are just like that. <laughs> Difficulty identifying and describing their own internal states, emotional and interpersonal difficulties. Now, this is demonstrated in many of the patients. Uh, I do not want you to leave here thinking that we have generated a population of patients that cannot live in society. That is not the case at all. The vast majority of patients who undergo congenital heart surgery are doing very well. They go to school, they go to college, they have successful pregnancies and careers. Now, they need a lot of support, a lot of intervention to get to that point, but they are productive citizens in society. Although, this has been looked at in three different studies now, to look at what is the implication of this lower IQ, and all this is theoretical, hasn't been measured at all, but if you base the, uh, the, other, the, the impact of uh, congenital heart disease on average lifetime earnings, it's been demonstrated or theorized that it's up to uh, 12 or even 18% reduction in lifetime earnings and then put into, the, uh, from a, a government perspective, and are they going to be um, good taxpayers in years to come, it looks like a, a 16 to $22 billion lifetime earnings lost and loss in productivity. This type of information indicates the, the importance of the strategies we undertake in the newborn and the infant period when we're managing these patients. The care we provide has an impact on their later outcomes. But as I said, there is a substantial era effect and I'm certain that while these figures indicate that there is a burden, it's not apparent to the patients that you will see coming into your adult intensive care units. And in fact, if you look at quality of life, and we're starting to look at these in a number of different areas, both physical and psychosocial, this is patients after going transposition, the Fontan surgery, ECMO, that most of them match up pretty well to the US general population. They are productive citizens in society, um, so when, they, when you see them in your adult environments, they are not people that need to be uh, treated any differently. However, the burden of this disease is not just in their uh, physical and psychosocial makeup. It's uh, beyond that, it's their uh, ability to get health insurance in the United States their ability to uh, be employed in a sustainable way and, and get the health insurance that allows them to access care. Many patients actually get lost to follow-up. They get absorbed back into the community and then they come to you or as an adult with their disease, often that has gone, un, undergone, uh, it has not uh, been followed closely enough, so they come back to you with a residual burden. That's the aspect of neurodevelopment. Uh, 
In terms of the adult with congenital heart disease and what you're likely to see, over the, this uh, light blue here are the live births with congenital heart disease. That's re remained relatively static at around one in a thousand live births. Same with the number of patients with uh, children and those with 18-year-olds with congenital heart disease. The number that is increasing consistently are the adults. And in fact, there are more adults with congenital heart disease in the United States now than there are children being born with congenital heart disease. It's a reflection of the su extraordinary successes that I mentioned. It's a very important group of patients that as of yet have not received the attention uh, that they deserve. The American Heart Association put together some guidelines in 2008 for the management of adults with congenital heart disease. Interestingly, they did not address um, specific pathophysiology or the burdens of the disease itself, but looked at the overall management of these patients. And it's very important because they concentrated in particular on the transition of care. Uh, now, the transition of care from pediatric to adult centers varies in the United States. In Boston, we elected to not transition. So we would have, in our intensive care unit, 10% of our admissions were patients older than 20 years of age. We would routinely have patients in their 50s undergoing, uh, with congenital heart disease, born with congenital heart disease, undergoing revision of their surgery. And it was elected to keep them in our uh, system because it was where there was a consistent knowledge base. It wasn't like trying to reinvent the wheel. Other centres, like in Toronto, where there is a fixed 18-year-old cutoff for admission to the uh, children's hospital, it meant they got transitioned to the adult centre. Well, fortunately, the adult centre, Toronto General, is just across the road, and what has been maintained is a very close collaboration between our units. And I think that's one of the things about congenital heart disease that is going to bridge paediatric and adult critical care. You can't go from one to the next and assume that, knowledge, that there is knowledge transfer. And I think uh, this is one area, for me in particular, that we should concentrate on uh, breaking down this barrier between, or this um, dichotomous view between paediatric and adult. The knowledge base that we have in the paediatric critical care and the management of these patients does translate. One of the things that's very important is the patient passport. Every patient with congenital heart disease should have one of these, and it outlines what their diagnosis is, their history, all the procedures they've been through, and hopefully some information as to their residual burden. It does not actually tell you what the longer-term complications are, uh, and doesn't give you the context or interpret that data. There are patients who will transition to the adult setting, and there will be in their passport a whole list of what they've been through, including perhaps some cath data. The under interpretation of that cath data, though, often doesn't follow. And it's important that there be this important collaboration between pediatric and adult centres going forward. Now, the problem with that, of course, is how do you maintain that collaboration and communication? And the American Heart Association has recommended that there be regionalised centres of excellence for adults with congenital heart disease. As I said, there are different models between centres that doesn't prevent collaboration, but there needs to be an expertise in cardiology, diagnostic and interventional catheterization, and in cardiac anesthesia. It's interesting that the American Heart Association has not addressed expertise in critical care, in surgery, perfusion, 
and in nursing. All of those, uh, these patients bring a pathophysiology and a strategy for management that can be really quite different. So I think the recommendations for regionalized care is fine, but it has to be comprehensive. And as of yet, that's not the case. So, uh, well, one last point about the recommendations. They did give very broad classifications for the risk of endocarditis, and rather than being uh, specific or disease-related, it was basically into three categories. Anybody with unrepaired heart disease, anybody repaired with prosthetic material or devices, and any patient with a residual defect, irrespective of their underlying anatomy. That makes a lot of sense. I think these broad categories are important because there are literally hundreds of combinations of congenital heart disease. And I'm not going to go through these at all, uh, other than touch on a couple. The permutations are significant, and the anatomy, to a large extent, just doesn't matter. It's understanding what the pathophysiologic burden is, the likelihood of residual lesions, and what the progress of the disease is uh, likely to be. Focusing on the anatomy is the wrong thing. But I think it's important to provide some framework, and this is a framework that I've used and, and we use both um, in, uh, in Boston, we used in Toronto in terms of trying to look at adults with heart disease and how you would classify them. And there are those patients that have had an anatomic repair and those patients that have had a functional repair. By functional repair, I mean that they're actually fully saturated, but they may have two ventricles or they may have only one ventricle. So the anatomic repair is the patient whose morphological left ventricle is the systemic ventricle, right ventricle is the pulmonary ventricle, and the, series is in, the circulation is in series. There's a group of those patients that I would put into the cured bracket. ASD repairs, VSD repairs, patent ductus, those types of patients. They usually present to you uh, with limited burden uh, over the years. And then there's the group that is corrected, but certainly not cured. And they've had undergone some sort of complex reconstruction. RV outflow reconstruction, such as tetralogy, or the arterial switch procedure is uh, another example. I can tell you with the arterial switch procedure that there is a 5 to 5 to 10% risk of having outflow obstruction from the right ventricle after this repair, longer term. That the pulmonary valve that is now in the aortic position 30% of the patients will have developed neoaortic or pulmonary valve, now in the aortic position, regurgitation. So the systemic semilunar valve, 30% trivial regurgitation. Up to 8% of the patients will have uh, coronary uh, occlusion following reimplantation. Most patients won't have symptoms because they've developed collaterals uh, to account for this. Aortic root dilatation, we don't know the percentage of patients that have this problem. Arrhythmias, low risk. And most patients describe themselves as doing extremely well. So this is a procedure where, that, where there has been remarkable recovery, uh, mortality less than 1%, and longer term outcome is terrific. But they do bring to breath uh, a certain burden, and it seems to be settling around the uh, the ability of the pulmonary valve longer term to support the systemic circulation in its new position and for aortic root dilation. Now that, that information is important. To get that requires going through um, hundreds and hundreds of retrospective review studies. This is where the transfer of knowledge between critical care physicians I think is really important. 
um, because this can uh, save and inform um, and give perspective. Let's take the patients who have had some sort of right ventricle outflow reconstruction. So it's the tetralogy of Fallot, trunchus arteriosus. Uh, a whole lot of patients fall into this category. And they can have basically three different types of problems. They may have restrictive right ventricular physiology. And by that, I mean as a, usually a stiff right ventricle with elevated end diastolic pressure, usually a hypertrophied ventricle. Um, that there is uh, residual pulmonary stenosis often in these patients downstream and they need to have cath and or balloon dilation and stenting of these lesions. Many of these patients come with a residual ASD. And ASD is left in many patients in infancy and neonatal period after these repairs as a pop-off valve between the, the, at the atrial level to make sure that you have this obligatory right to left shunt to augment cardiac output in a stiff right ventricle. Well, the problem, of course, as they get older is that ASD doesn't close and they're at risk for uh, paradoxical embolism. And often they need to be closed when they present with uh, acute illness from other, for other reasons. These patients can develop systolic dysfunction of the right ventricle and the, now they have an elevated end systolic volume and RV dilation and it's really related to how much pulmonary regurgitation they have. Uh, once again, there are some quite defined parameters through cardiac MRI, cath, that can help you define how significant these particular lesions are. And then some patients may require pulmonary valve replacement, um, particularly in their second to third decade of life. Finally, arrhythmias. Um, there is a risk for sudden death in these patients that is variably reported up to five, up to 8%. Most of them are ventricular arrhythmias, but they can be supraventricular as well. More commonly in patients with an elevated end diastolic volume as opposed to a pressure load, but there's no recommendation for prophylaxis. And in fact, arrhythmia is one of the most common problems that adults, in adult critical care settings you will need to deal with. There is no specific guideline, there is no pattern here. It's a, a being prepared uh, and understanding that um, a whole range of dysrhythmias can occur in these patients. The way in which you ventilate these patients is critical as well. This is a patient who, uh, this is their aortic uh, trace and this is their right ventricular trace. This is the uh, a positive pressure breath is applied at this point and you can see with that increased afterload in the right ventricle in a patient who has um, a residual burden with downstream obstruction of the branch pulmonary arteries, the IV pressure rises to systemic level very quickly. That may have a significant impact on output. It may also affect uh, the coronary uh, perfusion of that ventricle as well and lead to early failure. Once again, it's a problem that we deal with on a daily basis in pediatric critical care, less so perhaps in, in adult critical cares. This translation of knowledge is very important. The functional repair. These are patients where the circulation is still in series and they're acyanotic, but you can have two ventricles. And this, in this case, the right ventricle is now acting as your systemic ventricle. And there are the early repair of the arterial switch, um, sorry, the early repair of transposition of the great arteries. There was an atrial level switch. So the tricuspid valve remained the systemic AV valve going to the right ventricle out to the aorta. Over time, RV failure ensures. Uh, the tricuspid valve dilates and the, sets up a vicious cycle. The more tricuspid regurgitation you have, the greater the risk for right ventricular failure and for dysrhythmias. And then there's a the population of patients who have, a, who have just one ventricle. And they go to a staged procedure 
um, in particular the Fontan operation. These patients uh, have uh, remarkable outcomes. In the, uh, there's in, there's uh, more, higher mortality in the early stage procedures, but after the Fontan procedure, uh, they actually do extremely well. They function well, they appear to be doing fine until you stress them, and then their circulation can unravel quite quickly. And that's because you've got one ventricle and it's the flow of blood through the pulmonary circulation is dependent on the preload to that through how you've redirected systemic venous return under its own kinetic energy through the pulmonary circulation back into the systemic ventricle. And there are different pathways and different interventions that you can undertake in terms of managing these patients. It is a unique, a unique circulation. It is one that is well understood in pediatric circles and one in which there should be a translation of knowledge. There is no indication at all in my mind for the reinventing the wheel here, thinking of different strategies about this circulation. Uh, there certainly can be innovations in the management, but their, their impact of uh, disease on the circulation, I think, is, is pretty well understood. Once again, the effect of positive, pre uh, positive pre pressure ventilation is an example here. This is pulmonary Doppler pulmonary blood flow until you give it positive pressure breath, and now you start to get some reversal of flow. So pulmonary blood flow is very much dependent on the intrathoracic pressure and that afterload on the pulmonary circulation. The group of patients that we would extubate as soon as we can to make sure that during their um, uh, expiratory phase and with a subatmospheric inspiratory pressure, they uh, have augmented pulmonary blood flow. And the Fontan procedures have quite significant longer-term burden. The risk for arrhythmias may be supraventricular, uh, six sinus syndrome or heart block, and they all develop over various periods of time. The effect of chronic systemic uh, venous pressure being elevated and development of cirrhosis is emerging as a real problem in these patients and may be an indication for early transplantation. They can develop protein-losing enteropathy that may be independent of the systemic venous pressure. A plastic bronchitis, which is a terrible disease for some of these patients, where they produce chronic casts within their lungs, um, that is very debilitating. And then there is much higher risk for thrombosis and stroke, which is obvious based on simply of Verkhoff's triad and the risk for, th uh, for thrombosis. So these patients bring longer term complications and burdens with them as well. I want to finish with just showing just an example. Um, this is a patient, the uh, 24 year old. She was about, she was Vermont. She was at, in college studying to be a social worker. She was about to graduate, about four months from graduation. I received a call to say that she uh, had pneumonia, that she was on very high dose epinephrine, norepinephrine, high ventilation settings, and that uh, they could hardly keep her saturated, let, let alone maintain her blood pressure, and they wanted to transfer her for ECMO. And this was her anatomy. So, and the anatomy was not well known um, at the institution where she was being sent. She hadn't been able to communicate that with her, and her family didn't know. There was no passport. So this patient had SVC blood flow going just to the right pulmonary artery. This is what's called a Glen shunt. So all the blood flow to the right lung was through uh, the Canadian energy, if you like, of the SVC pressure. And then she had a central shunt coming off the innominate artery supplying the left pulmonary artery. So she had two different sources of pulmonary blood flow into what was a double inlet, double outlet right ventricle.
doesn't matter those terms, it's a single ventricle. Two sources of pulmonary blood flow, one under systemic pressure, one under venous pressure. And this is how she presented to us with white out of this left lung. Remember this is supplied by the uh, systemic pressure through that uh, central shunt. And then this lung, which is hyperinflated and black, and this is her main source of gas exchange, and yet blood flow was clearly impaired because the way in which she was being ventilated meant that she had very little blood flow coming from her SVC into her right pulmonary artery. She had, uh, it was understandable that she had impaired perfusion um, and impaired gas exchange and that understand why she was on that degree of support. Her management was um, to place a double lumen endotracheal tube to ventilate lungs differentially, low pressure, higher pressure, uh, and within 24 hours she was off inotrope support, she, gas exchange had normalised uh, and 48 hours later was back to uh, a much improved uh, circulation to the point where we could wean her and extubate her and she went back and graduated. This type of therapy we've used I guess four or five patients now but it's an example I think where uh, the underlying burden of their disease needs to be, you need to be creative perhaps in the way in which they're managed but it's uh, important to understand their underlying pathophysiology. And in adult critical care units that are unfamiliar with this, it's important that there be this very clear communication with other centres that can perhaps help them in this regard. I do want to make a point about cardiac catheterization in patients in the ICU, adult ICU, who are unwell. Um, consider it early. In any patient, particularly with there is uncertain physiology, residual defects, or if the patient's not recovering as you would expect. Certainly gives you some diagnostic and hemodynamic um, assessment. But the interventions in the cath lab for these patients are really critical. They include closing a residual intracardiac shunt that may have been contributing to their desaturation uh, and the risk for paradoxical embolism. These patients often develop abnormal aortopulmonary collaterals, venovenous collaterals that uh, result in a volume load and impaired systemic perfusion. Coiling those and getting rid of them can make a dramatic improvement. Balloon dilation and stenting of pulmonary or systemic stenosis, very important. And uh, over the last uh, few years, the percutaneous placement of the transcatheter percut um, valves is very important. Not only in the pulmonary valve position, but we've used it in patients who have uh, acute illness from other reasons, who have got severe aortic valve regurgitation or AV valve regurgitation. So being able to deploy these valves to give you competency during their um, immediate illness uh, is actually very important. So uh, I think one of the things that we need to be very aware of in the critical care setting is the value of catheterization, not just as a hemodynamic evaluation, but as the, from a therapeutic perspective. So the considerations in critical care is understanding the pathophysiology, understanding catheterization value, the sources of pulmonary blood flow, residual lesions, and an estimation of reserve. All of that is very important. As important is the communication and the collaboration that must exist between pediatric and critical care environments. So what's next? Well, early intervention is the key theme for um, the potential for neuro neurodevelopmental impairment. And that starts during the first admission. Uh, and a whole uh, field has developed now 
to make sure these patients are uh, slotted into longer-term development because the recovery and the uh, decrement in their burden of their um, neurodevelopment is dramatic if they have early uh, neuro uh, intervention. There must, must be this very careful and informed transition of care, perhaps into, broad into regionalized centers with broad expertise, but I really think that we as a, uh, critical care clinicians need to also take the lead with this and make sure that we also have seamless communication uh, and collaboration with these patients as well. Thank you for your attention. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.